I'm always a little bit curious if you all take note of these things that we put in the worship folder like the Lenten season insert. And part of me is always curious, I wonder how many people actually read that thing or not. So show of hands, who already read it tonight? Oh, very good, that's, that's encouraging. We always encourage you to take things like these home um, so that maybe if you didn't have time when you got here tonight or you were focusing on other, other aspects of your worship, um, you have it before you. I think it's really important that we provide information like this, partly because I hate the idea of going through uh, some of the traditional practices, especially when it relates to the church here or some of our other observations, and we have no clue or we've forgotten why we do it, uh, specifically the season of Lent. Why do we set aside uh, the time of Lent to focus primarily on our Lord's suffering and ultimately ending at the cross, which is the beautiful entrance and lead into Easter? So why do we have the 40 days? And I'll call your attention, especially to this second paragraph, because it begins to introduce this concept of 40, and we see it in the Lenten season, but uh, tonight we're gonna see it, it, it shows up in so many other places. The, the theme we're gonna use through the weekends, the Sundays and Mondays of the Lenten season is tested, but how do we get that theme and how does it connect back to the number 40. I'd like to take just a little bit of time and hopefully you'll see some insight in why the church fathers decided that was the right length for the season of Lent. They actually added some days to bring it up to the number 40. Well, why? I don't know how often in your Bible reading you stop to notice things like that, but the concept of 40 is used in 146 various ways, 40 days and 40 nights, 40 weeks, or sometimes 40 years. Now, I don't want to make too much of the issue of numerology, and that's where people take a look at numbers in the Bible, and they start to try and find these deep and hidden meanings. In fact, there are some religious groups and some Bible scholars that have gone way too far off the deep end looking for these mystic messages. Let's be clear. God speaks to his truth to us in very direct, specific ways. God doesn't give us some code in the Bible that we have to find and discover and see there a secondary message. What God wants us to know, God comes right out and tells us. And yet the fact that this shows up in a, almost 150 various ways, it does send a message to us telling us that for some reason, God likes to use the number 40. And not to go off the deep end with the numerology, we should also acknowledge the fact that God does use representative numbers in scripture, and I've given a couple of examples up there behind me, three. Uh, it's a no-brainer because God is triune. There's a lot of times in scripture we have this number three used in somewhat of a, if you will, symbolic way to take us back and our focus back on God. Uh, seven and 12, those are two other numbers, and you'll find them throughout scripture, but a lot of this you'll also find it specifically in the book of Revelation because it's, uh, except for the first opening chapters, it's not a literal book, it's a, it's a dream vision, and so numbers there do offer some similar representation. And, and specifically in the book of Revelation, but throughout scripture, uh, the number seven is a number of completeness. And it makes sense, there's a seven day week. Six days, you're not quite there. Eight days is just a little bit too much. 12, why did he choose 12 disciples? Why not 11, why not 13? Well, uh, social sciences have shown us it's the perfect number to work with a small group. Uh, more than that, it's just, it's too much to try and manage and handle. Less than that, you don't have the same kind of impact and input. So you see why God would choose these as representative numbers of 
than, uh, of completeness and wholeness. Sometimes, though, we should understand that the number 40 is just what it is, the number 40. And maybe you've already read ahead here, but this is the perfect example of that in Scripture. In this First Kings reference, Solomon is telling us how God directed him to set up the temple in Jerusalem and then also to construct the worship furnishings. And because washing, uh, purification washing, and the ceremonial washing was a big part in the Old Testament worship life, in the temple courtyard he put out of these four, uh, put out ten basins, and they each hold what we're told is forty baths. And there is the conversion; uh, it's a little over seven and a half gallons. So had close to eighty gallons there at all times for the priests to wash themselves and to ceremonially prepare. Here, forty means just what it says: forty. We should also understand 40 means that, but sometimes it takes on a greater representation. And I've already talked to you a little bit about some of these numbers, but I wanted to get us to uh, the 4 and the 10, which the, uh, multiply that out and you get your number 40. 4 is typically in Scripture sometimes used to symbolize something human or earthly. And maybe you've heard the phrase, the four corners of the earth. It's a globe. There's no corners. Uh, we find the four winds in, in Revelation. And if there was one number in all the Scripture which truly represents wholeness or completion, it's the number 10. And that's also why in Revelation you get 10 times 10 times 10. It, it's not talking about a thousand years, literally. It's talking about the most complete period of time, from the time Jesus promised to come back until that final day when he does come back. It's a set number of days that God alone knows. But it's the perfect number of days. It's the complete number of days. So 4 times 10 gives us something, and I can't tell you more than what uh, Scripture kind of lays out there for us. It has something to do with a complete period of time uh, dealing with our human lives or with us as human beings. And we're going to find that again and again throughout Scripture, and you find out how God also relates that in other human ways. The gestation period for coming into this world, for creating life, is typically 40 weeks. So you start to make some of these connections. And again, please don't read too much into the numbers. Don't go home and go, okay, pastor's got me all revved up. I'm going to look at every number in Scripture and see if there's some mystical thing there. That's not how it's meant to be used. But they are meant to jog our memories. They are meant to just go, wait a minute, there's something going on here. And we find that specifically with the number 40. Now let me show you one of the symbolic ways, if you will, that 40 is used to represent something, and this becomes now the basis of our study. And it has to do with the 40 years of wandering for the nation of Israel. Before Moses died, God reviewed for them why they wandered for 40 days. I'm sorry, for 40 years. And Numbers connects that back to the 40 days that the spies were in the land of Canaan. So for every day they scouted out the land and came back, 10 of them saying, well, we can't do this. Two faithful said we could. And they did not follow God's command to go in and take the land. Instead, they rebelled against him. God said, for every day of scouting, you will get a day of wandering. And then he goes on in Deuteronomy to tell us exactly why, to test you so that you may know your heart and also to humble you and teach you. So we find there's some very purposeful uses for the number 40, which becomes now the basis for our study on the weekends in Lent. Now, I know I just threw a ton of information at you, so what I like to do is reiterate this in a way that hopefully it sticks with you just beyond the couple minutes of my speaking, but maybe as we reflect through the Lenten season, whenever you see these lessons about 40, it says something special to you. The number 40 shows up often in the Bible. 
Because 40 appears so often in contexts dealing with judgment or testing, many scholars understand it to be the number of probation or trial. This doesn't mean that 40 is entirely symbolic. It still has literal meaning in scripture. 40 days means 40 days. But it does seem that God has chosen that number to help emphasize times of trouble and hardship. Here are some examples of the Bible's use of the number 40 that stress the theme of testing or judgment. In the Old Testament, when God destroyed the earth with water, he caused it to rain 40 days and 40 nights. After Moses killed the Egyptian, he fled to Midian, where he spent 40 years in the desert tending flocks. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses interceded on Israel's behalf for 40 days and 40 nights. The law specified a number of lashes a man could receive for a crime, setting the limit at 40. The Israelite spies took 40 days to spy on Canaan. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. Before Samson's deliverance, Israel served the Philistines for 40 years. Goliath taunted Saul's army for 40 days before David arrived to slay him. When Elijah fled from Jezebel, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. The number 40 also appears in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jonah. In the New Testament, Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. There were 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Whether or not the number 40 really has any significance is still debated. The Bible definitely seems to use 40 to emphasize a spiritual truth, but we must point out that the Bible nowhere specifically assigns any special meaning to the number 40. Some people place too much significance on numerology, trying to find a special meaning behind every number in the Bible. Often, a number in the Bible is simply a number, including the number 40. God does not call us to search for secret meanings, hidden messages, or codes in the Bible. There is more than enough truth in the plain words of Scripture to meet all our needs and make us complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So hopefully now you get a, a kind of a grasp on what we're going to be doing on the weekends. And I just want to bring this introduction full circle, why Psalm 23 serves as an excellent uh, counter to that, if you will. We'll find that in each of these lessons concerning being tested, uh, part of this 40 is God knows what our limits are, and we'll discuss that just a bit tonight. Um, but we should also remember that through each and every test, God is our good shepherd. He leads us. He guides us. And there's a specific purpose behind the test which God places in our lives so that we do learn. Maybe it is to be humbled, but in the end, it's to recognize that we aren't strong enough to either rescue ourselves in this life or for the next. We have to turn our attention to our Savior and his cross. So tonight, the uh, leapfrog lesson, if you will, is this one from Mark. Uh, and I'll read it for you in a second, but I want to clarify, this was chosen for a very specific reason, which we'll get into. And of course, it's one of the most prominent New Testament uh, records we have of this concept of the 40 days, 40 nights. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. I don't know if you've ever really uh, considered this lesson from Mark's perspective. Most of us, I believe, are probably familiar with the accounts in Matthew and Luke, so we find it's recorded in all three synoptic Gospels. And typically, Matthew or Luke's 
text on this is used for sermons and Bible studies because there is so much more detail and of course there are longer versions and maybe if you remember those they go into great detail about the temptations and there's always that misconception there were only three he was tempted for all 40 days and it's only three of them that are highlighted within those two records compared to those two Mark's accounting of this is rather short but that's exactly the reason why it was chosen, not to give your pastors less Greek work to do, but because of the way God has Mark record events in Scripture. We were introduced to Mark's writing style in the season of Epiphany because all of our lessons except for Transfiguration Sunday came from Mark. And one of the things that you were uh, told about Mark's gospel is that he doesn't tend to focus on the details. The Holy Spirit has him kind of leave those out, knowing that they could be studied in Matthew and Luke's account of the very same episodes. Instead, Mark, because of his audience, he's writing to Roman Gentiles. He's writing real action-packed, kind of snippet-type information for them. Either the Romans were easily bored or because they were people of action, it appealed quite a bit to them. The reason why we're going, uh, taking a look at this tonight from Mark's perspective isn't because we don't want to deal with the temptations, but it's because of the context of Mark and his focus. Because the word that we take and use as tested can also be translated as tempted, and we'll get to that in a bit too. There's two sides of this coin, and Mark's focus, properly understood, takes us more in the direction of being tested, whereas the other two Gospels tend to spend a little more time on the tempting part. We won't disregard that, but that will not be the main focus of tonight's study. We'll save that for another time. One other thing is, is that Mark immediately leads us into action by the way he begins this lesson, at once. It seems like a simple thing, but it, it's really an action word. It's an adverb of time telling us uh, that immediately after something happens, then the action begins. And what Mark does is he connects us back to Luke's account, where we discover how this all plays out. And we had that as one of our lessons. Mark's was the shorter version of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist at the Jordan River. That's the very first event of his public ministry. That's a public announcement that this is the chosen one, the Messiah. Now you need to understand Jesus' baptism is different than our baptisms. It wasn't the sacrament that we go through. Instead, it was an anointing, a public announcement. This is my son. I love him. You need to listen to him because I've sent him to save you. Okay, that's the announcement, but this is the very first activity of his public ministry where the Holy Spirit actually has a direction for Jesus to go. Now, Matthew and Luke kind of suggest what's going on. They use the passive verb, he was led, but Mark, that action man, takes it to the next level. He was driven out into the desert. Don't misunderstand. Jesus wasn't going against his will. All three tell us that Jesus was submitting his will to both the Father and the Spirit, which is a clear sign that he is now stepping into his role as Messiah and about ready to begin the last stage of his work as the one who comes to rescue us. There had been 30-some years of his life set aside, not specifically doing the active things that we're now going to see him do and study, but in a passive sense, he is fulfilling the law and will of God by living a perfect life that you or I could never in our lifetimes live or give to God. There's another thing that you need to understand about this whole concept that Mark is setting up for us, 
And it has to do with the fact that while the word is translated as desert, and it is a correct translation, there's more than meets the eye here. And what all three synoptic gospels are doing for us is they're setting the context, but Mark takes it again to the next level. Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, didn't eat or drink. And I don't know if you've really stopped to think, why would he do that? Did he really need to do that? But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus now is stepping into his role as Messiah. And one of the things that we did touch on during the Epiphany season, that as our substitute, he sets aside all of his divine attributes, meaning that he could function as the Son of God and as true God himself, but in order to step in our place, he sets that aside. He didn't always read people's minds. He didn't always do a miracle by his own power. Oftentimes he would do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in one of the lessons from Luke that we had uh, read during the Epiphany season. One of the things that we need to understand and focus on is Jesus is willing to put himself into this weakened state because he is our representative. You see, we face each and every temptation or test in our lives weakened. Not that we're hungry or thirsty, but we're weak, sinful human beings. We're not what God created us to be. So everything we have to deal with and endure in this life is in a weakened state. Jesus himself, as our substitute, weakens himself as he does battle with the devil and face this test of God. It is Mark's gospel that now notches it up. It's one thing to be hungry. I don't know how y'all operate when you get hungry. I get a little bit ornery, or maybe you've seen those Snickers commercials on TV. You're hangry which is ultimately kind of one of the things that happens to us sinners when we haven't properly cared for our uh, needs of drink and, and food. But there's something else when you go to the lonely place. And that's actually what Mark says. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus out to the lonely place. And again, we have to understand what Mark is telling us. As he steps into his role as Messiah, this final stage of that work on our behalf, we're being told that there is only one person that God has chosen and one person qualified to be our rescuer. Jesus Christ alone has to face everything that we were supposed to face. There's nobody who can stand there behind him or aside of him. And all the times that even requested that his disciples might be there to support him, even they fail to do that because when it comes to making payment for the sins of the entire world and setting the record clean with God the Father, there is only one who can do that. Typically during the Lenten season, we focus on the suffering of our Savior, and it's proper and good that we do so. But I believe this might be one of those sufferings that we oftentimes overlook, that this was the loneliest job this world has ever seen, and only Jesus could do this job for us. Now, if we follow along what Mark is telling us, both with the context and his focus, all of a sudden now we understand this word, tempted. Again, it's properly translated, but with Mark's focus, it's less about the temptations of the devil. And Matthew and Luke do an excellent job teaching us how he fights against the temptations, but Mark focuses more on the testing. That's why he allowed himself to be in this weakened state. And this testing is actually a word with two different ways to go, either to scrutinize or to examine closely or the temptation as we see the devil confronting Jesus, doing his very best trying to get him to sin. This testing concept, you probably are familiar with it. That's how they verify the value and genuineness of precious metals. They have to be assayed. They have to be tested. So you understand what's taking place here, and this is the very first act of his ministry. Jesus is being tested. He's being 
examine closely to find if he is the genuine thing and is actually who he claims to be and can fully live up to that declaration of God the Father. This is my beloved son. This testing fits perfectly with all of the Old Testament practice of the Passover feast. The preparation four days beforehand was to go out and find an unblemished lamb. You could not celebrate the Passover, which was a shadow of the cross, by going out and finding a pretty good lamb or a good enough goat. It had to be perfect. It was the symbol, the perfection, the perfect sacrifice that would be given in order to rescue us from our imperfection. Now, as we look at this number 40, even with our Savior, it is intriguing for us. And I don't know, maybe your mind's already gone here, but as I'm working through these verses, I'm thinking, interesting, the Son of God is setting aside his divine attributes, placing himself in this weakened state, and even our Savior has a period of testing which is limited. And maybe that might be the best way to understand the use of 40 in all of these lessons that we're going to take a look at. God does allow tests to come into our lives. But they aren't these endless tests, and they don't go on and on. There's a purpose to every test. It is to show us something. God already knows what's in our heads and what's in our hearts, but sometimes those tests are for no other reason than for us to see something about ourselves whether or not we are fully trusting God, and sometimes nothing more than to humble us and teach us just how much we can trust God. That too applies to our Savior. Remember, this is a representative act of all sinful mankind. He's stepping into our place. And it is a clear message that even as our Savior is tested, God would have a limit to that. Now that doesn't mean this would be the last test. You know for the next three years, Sometimes the devil attacked him directly, and sometimes it was done indirectly through people or through various situations, and every time he comes through with flying colors. This test proves to us that for 30 years he has lived the perfect life, and he is the real thing, and so that when he's finally nailed to that cross on our behalf, that is pure blood that is dripping to the ground for us. Not pretty good blood, but the Son of God's blood, perfect blood, the only thing that can make things right for us. And God, this testing is important as much for him as it is for us so that we can recognize that God is going to accept this sacrifice on our behalf and that there's nothing left for us to do so that each and every time we face a test, it is limitations. And one of those limitations isn't, one of those limitations is, is that the goal isn't for us to prove to God that we're good enough or that we deserve to be rescued. That's what the genuineness of this man's test tells us, which means our tests come for different reasons. Now, I do not want to disregard the temptation part. I know I could have done a sermon that we'd spend so much time on all three of those temptations, and the devil did his very best, not just on this test, this time of testing, but for Christ's entire life. If he could get him to step in one wrong place, to say one wrong word, to trip up one little time, then he could not have passed this test and he could not have been our Savior. And Matthew and Luke do a beautiful job. Of course, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but their focus in the way they write does a beautiful job to teach us exactly how our Lord deals with the temptation side of this. 
Every time the devil lied to him. Every time the devil would take God's own word and try and twist it. Much like the very first temptation. Did God really say? And of course the Lord answers back, you bet he did. The Lord would take that word, that powerful word, and place it back into the context of Scripture and actually reiterate what God the Father was trying to tell us in the life by which he would live. That is an important thing that we ought to remember out of this tempting and this testing. But Mark adds something to this that you just don't see in the other two. And that's one of the beauties of having the synoptics. It's the same accounting, but from three different perspectives for three different groups of people. And when you put them all together, it's this beautiful masterpiece of what our Savior actually went through for us. And Mark's the one who takes us into the final stages of this. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. That's not quite right as far as the translation goes. You see, I put up the word in the literal meanings. He wasn't in the lonely place with wild animals. He was out in the lonely place with deadly animals. I don't know if you ever noticed that in all three accounts, we're never told exactly in what shape or form the devil shows up in order to test and tempt our Savior. I kind of think maybe it was like that, but that's just a guess. I wouldn't... Uh, try and tell you you have to believe that. I'm just trying to simply point out to you that what Mark actually tells us is that in this weakened state, as he endures this test for us, he's putting his life on the line already. And yet he's willing to endure it, and it shows us something about how God would have us face the tests that come in our lives. And the first part of that is to trust God the Father's will. You see, Jesus knew that this was neither the time nor the place where he would die. And so he could be amongst not just the wild animals, but the deadly animals, the vicious animals, the venomous animals. And he didn't fear for his life, and neither should we. And there's something else that Mark teaches us as far as enduring the tests and getting the best out of them. While Luke does kind of talk about the angels, Matthew and Luke tend to focus more on the departure of the devil. And again, that wouldn't be the last time he would attack Jesus, but Marx is the one that really takes the angel thing to the next level. The angels came and attended him. Now what I'm going to say next, I want to say very carefully, because there's actually been some religions that end up worshiping angels. I would never want us to fall into that sin. We all know that there is only one true God, and our worship belongs to him. We all know that as powerful and uh, spiritual as the angels are, they are actually a being that are below us in the rank of God's creation. We are the crown. The angels were created to serve us and protect us. So as we endure the test, much like our Savior endured the test for us, besides relying on our Father's will and trusting Him and His wisdom for whatever test He allows to come our way, I wonder if we take enough advantage of the very same thing our Savior takes advantage of, if we shouldn't be praying more for God to send his holy, powerful angels and put a wall of protection around us. I know this study and this lesson from Mark encourages me more, and maybe you know Luther's morning and evening prayer and his response to protection is that we pray to God to send his holy angel to keep watch over us. It's not just some mystical childhood fantasy that there are these guardian angels. God has created so many angels with so much power, and maybe we ought to start asking God if he wouldn't send a few more of them into our lives 
not only to fight against temptation, but to endure the tests as well. There are going to be several lessons that we're going to go through in the Lenten season. Some of them were already referenced in that video before. Um, and maybe as that was playing, there are certain ones that I, I know as I went through the many various ways the number 40 is being used, I was surprised that there are a lot of them I hadn't recognized or maybe noted in my own mind. Uh, we'll take a look at some of the more common ones. In fact, the 40 days and 40 nights of rain and Noah and the Ark is going to be our lesson this coming Sunday and, and Monday night here. But then we're going to also take a look at some of the lesser known ones because it's helpful to us to have a full vision and version of this concept of 40 and God's testing. The lesson tonight I think we need to take home has to do with what happens when God does allow us to be tested. And I believe it's our Lord who already sets the scene and shows us how to go into those tests. Because whether you're a pastor or a newly baptized child, whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're a parent or a child, usually when tests come, our most natural question is, why? Why, why me? I'm usually, and I'll tell you how many times I found myself up to here with whatever's going on in my life, and something comes, and after a while I finally recognize, okay, this is a bit of a test. Usually I'm thinking, God, I don't need this right now. I got all this other stuff to do, but I find the test itself really is God's purpose to help me understand I do need this right now. I don't know everything I think I know. I don't always know the best way to go through it. All I know is that the Lord shows me that I need to submit to the Father's will. Instead of asking the why me question, sometimes the test itself is to teach us there is a better question. Not why, but what? You see, one of the things that we want to do is God to always explain himself to us. Sure, we submit to his will, but God, would you please fill us in on what that will is? I know I've been asking that question over and over and over for several years now. What's the point? Where's this going? I want my answers, and God doesn't seem fit to tell me. And whether you like to hear it or not, God owes us no explanation. In fact, oftentimes the very point of the test is to not know its purpose until it's been completed, until we're on the other side of the river and we can look back and go, okay, I cannot tell you how many times in my life and my ministry as I'm going through some test, I'm moaning and groaning about it, but years later I look back and I'm going, okay, you are absolutely brilliant, God. You were simply preparing me for this next step in my life and this next part of my journey of faith. I pray one of the things that comes out of our study of 40 and the testing is that we come to realize and appreciate how wise but how loving our God is to test us. Not because he doesn't know where we're at, but because we need to know where we're at with God and where God is always at with us. One of the things that the test we've looked at tonight tells us that it was preparation for this, our Savior going to the cross to pay for our sins, to prove to us that he wasn't some counterfeit or just didn't quite get the job done. A perfect Savior, a perfect sacrifice, and it yields to us perfect life. Tests for us are often this side, to teach us that we can't do it alone, nor are we big enough or smart enough to actually figure it all out. Instead, our place of refuge and rescue is at the foot of the cross, and so we should get pretty comfortable making that journey there. 
I pray to God that he uses this series on testing so that we never confuse the two and so that we pass the test because our Savior passed it for us. The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world and then sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them? Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task because he wants to know if you are trustworthy. Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble. Right, but then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you, and he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks. Well, the rebel is setting a trap. Right, so a test could be an opportunity or a trap. And the difference is whether the one testing you has your best interests in mind. I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree. Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat of that other tree. Right, the rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind to go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first things go well, but Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself and then he and Sarah scheme to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants. Definitely not passing the test. But. God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test. So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test. Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to test them. Like when the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They have lots of opportunities to trust in God, to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them. And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise. They're not loyal and eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God, but no one is really qualified. And so all of this brings us forward to Jesus.
There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Ah, yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends and God commissions him to go up to Jerusalem and to give up his life. And so he goes. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden. And he told them to pray because tonight, he said, is the great test. And he prayed to God, please let this test pass from me, but not my desire, rather may your desire be done. In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom. He loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil with good. Even though it cost him his life. Right. Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf of us all. This is amazing. But... That doesn't mean everything is gonna be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest, we're gonna face our own tests every day. Right, Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways. And these tests can be difficult and often painful. But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf.